I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey, everybody. I hope you're all out enjoying the holiday season with your nearest and dearest. Big thanks for letting us be a part of your celebrations. I'm Evelyn, and this is Reppin'. Today... Get ready to meet a true powerhouse in the entertainment legal scene. She's an entertainment and intellectual property business attorney who focuses on copyright and trademark brand protection for entertainment content creators. So she works to ensure that content creators don't get ripped off. Picture this, major networks like NBC, VH1, Bravo, they all owe some of their coolest deals to her. Yeah, we're talking love and hip hop and the Real Housewife franchises, among others. And when it comes to films, she's also one of the players behind those deals for directors, writers, actors, and producers. Now, working in showbiz, it's no cakewalk. And she's a woman, and a woman of color. So she faces biases and challenges, many of them, but she does it head on. But here's the twist. She's not your typical lawyer. Forget the old school stereotypes. Imagine an attorney who means business, but never loses sight of the real heroes, her clients. So what's her secret sauce? And how does she negotiate mega deals without losing her cool? Turns out it's all about keeping it real. And my guest today is gonna share some of those secrets of how she infuses humanity into her legal business. So can you be a top-notch negotiator and still stay true to who you are? 
She's going to tell us how she does that and how to be a badass attorney without ever losing that warm touch. Please say hello to Marissa Crespo. Marissa, thank you so much for being here. I know it's an early Saturday morning and you have got lots to juggle with, not only a busy career, but also a family and a baby. So how are you? Thank you for having me. I enjoy this. You know, I'm not doing as many in-person meetings where I can sit and chat for a little bit. So this is nice where I can get it. So thank you. <laughs> you are a prominent entertainment attorney. But tell people a little bit more about yourself, your background, where you grew up, and what your heritage is and ethnicity, because this is a podcast. No one can see it. Absolutely. I am actually African-American and Puerto Rican. So take that context. A lot of people think you grew up in the Bronx, like from New York. No, I actually grew up in the Midwest, okay, as middle American as you can get in the suburbs of Illinois. So transplanted myself there, or my family did, and then I was raised out in the Midwest up until college. You know, I said I got off the, the John Deere tractor and got rid of the overalls and decided to exchange it for beautiful bags for the big city. I have a great family. I My sister, who is eight years older than me, and I had a brother who was four years younger than me. So I was the middle child, you know, the, the personality that was supposed to be more of the tame one. We were very close. But that helped really build that foundation within me of just staying humble. Okay. Especially because I was growing up in environments where definitely had some adversity and like meant challenges to my identity, trying to figure out who I am, as most people are just trying to figure that out. Um, but with the context of being so different, you know, phenotypically, as well as just as a person in general. What's interesting is African and Puerto Rican. A lot of people do immediately think New York, Bronx, girl. Uh -huh. But what was it like growing up in the Midwest when, you know, look, I'm Chinese and, and I grew up in the boroughs of New York. And even then I was like struggling trying to figure out how do I fit in. I, did, I had said in previous episodes, I had actually asked my mom for a nose job because I wanted to be blonde. Wow. And I didn't understand why I didn't look like a Barbie doll or some of my friends. Yeah. So I really did ask for a nose job. I've come to understand now that is not a unique experience, unfortunately. And that's in the boroughs of New York City. So for you in the Midwest, what was that like? And what were some of the challenges that you had to face? And how did you grapple with that sense of identity and belonging, especially during those formative years? Oh, 100%. It was definitely difficult. My parents were very much in the mindset, particularly my mother was very adamant that we had the best education and we had a fighting chance, right? So like, how can we gear up our children, regardless of their ethnic background, to be successful in life? And so just to give a little bit more context, my father was Puerto Rican, my mother was African-American, who got together during a time where in the 60s, it was, it was not very popular, right, for, for this type of commingling to happen. They had their own universities that they went through and handled it differently from a generational perspective. But with her, education was that ticket of build your identity off of that, be able to have an equal fight. And whatever that fight may be, you'll just be equipped to, to handle it. But being in the Midwest, where I grew up, there were a lot of people who had you know ancestral roots from like Norway, Germany, and also Sweden. So really, you know, I'm in like this North atmosphere, Anglo-Saxon atmosphere. And then here I am bubbling around with like curly hair that I haven't figured out. I'm like, oh, damn. Who am I? <laughs> right. It's a process. Um, but honestly, I think it helped shape pretty early on because I, I learned a lot from different people who did not look like myself, 
I had to figure out internally, like, who am I? What kind of person do I want to be? And it's outside of color, 100%. I just wanted to be a person who was empathetic to people, who had compassion, understood the underdog, to be quite frank, because I felt like for so long I was an underdog and I dealt with really imposter syndrome for a very long time as I went through school to try to be the best student that I could be, to be on honor roll and to be right there with everyone else in AP classes, right. which also translated into my career for a very long time of how I was trying to be accepted and to feel validated in these spaces that I were operating in. You know, what's really interesting is I, I've found throughout my conversations and, and also privately, a lot of high functioning, super smart, talented women all have struggled with some variation of imposter syndrome. Mm. I find that to be so interesting. And yeah, I don't know what it is. If it's like a gender thing in a society and stuff like that, I don't know. What do you think? I think it's a cross section. Yeah, that, that little bugger is very pervasive, man. <laughs> yeah. Put it nicely and mildly, right? Yeah. You can curse on this show just to let you know. Oh, excellent. I'm sure it's going to slip out because this, yeah, this Midwesterner, like I said, you know, I got some things in me. <laughs> All right, girl, let it go. I grew up in the Midwest, but then I lived in New Jersey, traveled to New York for a bit. Now I'm in Atlanta. So I've got a little bit of a nice regional backdrop of who I am that's an amalgamation of all of them. <laughs> so you'll probably hear the New York side come out here and there. I'm going to do everything that I can to bring that shit out. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? S since your time to the Midwest, I know that you came to New York. You studied law. Can you give a little background and... Let's name drop, girl. Let's talk about some of your high profile clients because you do not fuck around. I do not. You've done a lot of great, incredible work. Thank you. Thank you so much. The resume version is, yes, you know, I left the Midwest and I knew I wanted an opportunity for myself to be able to grow and to be, you know, be in an environment that was a lot more mixed than where I grew up. So for that reason, I decided to go to school out on the East Coast. My mother is originally from West Philly. So I happened to go to a, a college where I got a chance to talk to different representatives at these schools. And Villanova really distinguished themselves, which I loved how they were about community. It was a great opportunity to just pack my bags, use the educational tickets, and like really experience culture. And I did. I, I got a chance to see not just ethnic diversity, but I got to experience intellectual diversity. I'm talking about sitting in classrooms. I, I was a humanities major, an English major. And so as a humanities major, I'm sitting next to a Republican Catholic theologian in the making on one side of me and then this socialist atheist to the right of me, you know, and here I am just in the middle, figuring it all out. But we're having these true enriching conversations that you unfortunately don't get to hear as much in the real world. So college was a great setting to put us all together in this weird Petri dish. You see what's going to be made from that. But it, it was a great experience nonetheless. With that, while I was in college, I really started going a lot harder of like, I really want to experience diversity. And again, going back to the idea of I always felt like this underdog. I always wanted to help fellow underdogs in different facets. And so in thinking about law at the time, I thought that law is a progressive industry, one that ignites change, one in which you have the power of advocacy, the power of voice in a platform to be able to not only speak your truths, but also to help speak others. And so what I realized, though, in going through different internship opportunities, even in college, I was very adamant of like now trying to train myself to think like a lawyer. Like, what does that even mean? 
And I didn't want to try to get into law school to figure that out. I wanted to already know that up front. Right. That I started off actually doing immigration work. I was doing Spanish or English translations of narratives of women who were here from Mexico, from Guatemala, from different Hispanic countries that actually, unfortunately, had experienced some form of abuse. And there wasn't a, a, a visa at the time, the U visa, as a pathway for them to possibly get citizenship in the United States over time. They were able to get such card and stay for several years, take the test, et cetera. But what I realized really quickly going through that in college and then my first couple of years in law school was, damn, you know, this is pretty heavy work and it's such a broken system. It's multiple systems that you have to deal with. And to see that it's short-term success. There's so much that they have to do to actually be here in the United States as a citizen. And you really see the struggles of folks just trying to figure out the disorientation, you know, trying to get aligned with what is this culture that I'm coming into? Um, there's psychological trauma. You know, it's, it's pretty heavy shit. So I did it for a summer full time. And I was like, kudos to those who can do this. I, I want to fight the good fight, but I, I'm carrying this home. I'm really taking case files home. I'm absorbing this in a way that for my mental, it was starting to have an impact. And I was like, I don't know if I'm fit for this. I'm too much heart. <laughs> I have to learn to cut it off at a certain point, but I didn't want that part of me to be cut off. Yeah. So I was like, I still want to do advocacy work. Right. But not like this, because I feel like it's going to turn me into something I don't necessarily want to be as a human. Shutting off and being more automated than I want my true being to be. Yeah. So I went on ahead and I decided to switch gears in entertainment. How I did it was actually through entertainment artist visas, which is a very niche area that not many practitioners know about or, or people can use unless like you're heavily in production and deal with foreign artists. And I was able to broker my way into the transactional side of entertainment to where I am today that I really tried to focus in on representing people of color who need a shot, who don't get the power of the knowledge or my uncle was a producer or this person who had this level of power. Yeah. They were part of the gatekeeping industry of Hollywood. You know, so with grit, it took time for me to get there, which I can share a bit more of. But that's where it stands today of just that trajectory. It's a lot. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You also failed to mention that you have your own law firm. <laughs> Marissa Crespo Law. I know. You know what? And you've done, you've brokered a lot of deals for like NBC, VH1. Your list of credits go on and on. And I love how you very kindly said you didn't want to be an attorney that was automated. From what I know of you, and I think this is what I wanted to get to in in many ways, stereotypes of all kinds exists, right? Stereotypes about being, if you're Black, you're Chinese, or all the races, all how you identify um, stereotypes also exist with jobs and people that live in certain cities. I mean, stereotypes of all kinds exist and play into bias and perspective and how we see things and how we, you know, deal with things, really. And attorneys in general <laughs> don't always have the best um, image. And I think there is some positive things when you need to create a barrier and you don't take your work home. But I think this is what I'm getting to. The stereotype of an attorney isn't always necessarily a flattering one. A lot of them, the stereotype is it's all business. It's cutthroat. You know, the list goes on and on. But from what I know of you, your humanity is, seems to always take the front seat. Can you talk about where that comes from? Was it an early experience that you had as a kid, like you don't ever lose sight of what you're doing or why you're doing it. You always seem to have the heart, the perspective, the empathy, and the humanity to be front and center. And though, yes, you do have a job, you do your job, and it is all business many times <laughs> because you get a lot of pushback, right? All day. But yeah, that's a whole nother thing we're going to get to right after this. Um, how do you infuse your person and your values into what you do and still do it well? Was there something early on in your life that really gave you that truth and that value system? Absolutely. Um, you know, look, I, as I mentioned, I, I bring up my background as far as where I live geographically for a reason, because feeling like other in the classrooms, at the playground. I mean, there were those days as a sad little child that didn't really have any friends to play with because people didn't really gravitate towards me or things like that. Like, those were some of the struggles I think that I had as a kid. But what I was and what I always am is an observer. So I found myself at the playground just watching how people interacted. So it may sound like this who have scenario at the playground, but I, I actually look at that into a magnified form today in an adult version of just watch how people interact in offices with people are going back to offices or just in social settings, social professional settings. You know, people try to hide themselves a lot. For me, I just felt like it's a lot easier to show up and just be who you are. <laughs> and either that's going to work or it's not going to work. Now, all environments will allow you to do that. 
right? So I, I definitely went through those struggles professionally where, look, you talk to any of my colleagues throughout the years that have known me at this first law firm that I started working at outside of law school to today's date. And everyone would say the same thing. She's goofy, funny, but she can be real professional. Folks that initially met me and then like really got to know me, they're like, at first, I just thought you were rigid, like straight face. I didn't know how to read you. And then they're like, but you're actually like, you're a delight. And I always find that funny because to me, I'm like, I don't know what this face is, but I've heard my father say it. I've heard like, I have a, a face where I'm staring at you. It's like I'm staring into your soul and they've got like big green eyes. So I'm always told, don't stare like that. It looks creepy. But I'm locking in. I'm locking in because I'm not trying to just hear what you're saying to me, but I'm trying to read you at the same time. The essence of you, like what's really coming across at the end of the day. Right. And so I think just being that personality from a kid to an adult, that's a core me that has not changed. And I, I'll be honest, like I really struggled. I went to a top institution. I went to Columbia Law School for my legal education. And I, I felt like, once again, I was this outsider. But I'm among like Olympians, you know what I'm saying? Like people that are doing great things, people that were used to run hedge funds that decided to go to law school during an economic downturn that we had experienced at that point in time. I think for myself, as this person that dealt with imposter syndrome for years and in those stages as well, always feeling like I wasn't good enough in the space that I was in, I lost sight of being able to really relish in the spaces that I have been able to put myself in. Yeah. I I think it's still a reminder that I need to have today. Just think about all the stuff that you've done. You've done quite a bit. (laughs) But I also wanted to make sure that in anything that I was doing, I always asked myself this question, is this me? Is this really what I love to do? Like, why am I grinding so hard? What is this all for? And a lot of times it it has nothing to do with the financials or the power symbol status, all these things. It's just actually, to be honest, because I dealt with a lot of challenges where people question or, or told me I couldn't do something. It made me more adamant of saying to them, oh, but I can, and I'll show you how. So I can give you several different occasions where I I can really think about those moments that I have to sit back and highlight. When I was in college and I was getting ready to gear up for law school, I knew I wanted to do that my second year in. I knew that I was not a great test taker. I have anxiety issues when it comes to test taking because, again, it's all of this stuff playing in my head. Am I good enough? Do I know what I need to know? Am I going to make it? Am I going to pass? I think of all of these things that like become this build up to the heavy pant and the cold sweats. Yeah. And standardized testing was not my forte <laughs> whatsoever, but where I excelled was in writing because that was actually where I could release a lot of my emotions. So I made sure that I, I could take the, the standardized test, practice as much as possible. I put myself through a, a Kaplan program four nights a week, yeah. even over the summer while I worked a part-time job at Dollar Tree. Just to make sure that I was up to snuff to even have the numerical score that could get me in the door of some of the institutions I wanted to go to. Because I was looking at Harvard, Stanford, Columbia, you know, some of these top dogs. And I'll never forget that I went to a career counselor at Villanova. I'm hoping he's not still working there, trying to advise people of their careers. It's awful. I go in there and I sit down with him and I told him what schools I wanted to go to. He did a quick nod and he said, what's your LSAT score? And at the time it sucked. And I remember him smirking and he said, he didn't even say, you might want to look at 
other law schools outside of those top tier schools. They're very competitive. He just told me out, out the gate, you might want to reconsider the profession. It's like the goal of people to make such broad stroke statements about somebody. Yeah. I just feel like, like, who are you to say that? And that happened a couple of times in my, in my career. I just remember running out of there. I was in tears. I called my mom about it, you know, and she was like, never let anybody tell you who you are. You know exactly who you are. You know what you're capable of doing. So now you just got to show them otherwise. And she's but don't show it because you want to show him. Show yourself. Show up for yourself. I'll never forget when she said that. I was grinding it out. Long story short, I applied to all these law schools I talked about. And I got into Columbia. I'll never forget when I got that package. It was like this big blue and golden package. And I was like, damn, that's a big ass rejection letter. I ain't never seen that that big before for rejection. I think they would waste that much paper to tell (laughs) you no. (laughs) But in my brain, I was like, no, no, no. I couldn't have possibly gotten in there, you know? When I got the acceptance letter, I remember being in like one of the um, lounge hall areas where we could all kick back and relax. We have pool tables. And when I saw it said, we are pleased to, that was all I saw. We were pleased. That's why me too. I jumped up. I hopped up on the pool table. I'm jumping around, hollering, hollering. And thank God I was actually on the phone with my mother at that point because I felt like this is the first person I'd want to tell. Oh, that's awesome. And so that was like the first time that I felt like, okay, I can do something. And it really just transpired. And the next time where I felt like that strong, hard push challenge was my first legal job. Once I graduated from law school, I started at a big law firm and I met some challenges there where, again, I dealt with, and I'll, let me be honest, okay, because we're on repping, so it's about representation. Yeah. I was in an office where I was the only Black attorney and Black woman being in my mid-20s. I wasn't even like 25 at that point starting a career in law. And uh, my counterparts, my colleagues are those that were like 50, 60-year-old white men who grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, who grew up in rich parts of Connecticut. And then here I am from the Midwest. I'm like, okay, you probably still smell like Similac on my breath at this point. Like, I am just this child. I'm younger than your children. And I'm supposed to be like handling matters. So there was a huge learning curve there. There was a learning curve. Yeah. And what I took from that experience, you know, that was my first time actually getting laid off. You know, they were actually doing cuts and I was one of the newest members. But what bothered me was I felt like I was not considered valued and valuable to keep. And that that really hit hard with me because it was how they did it. It was because I wasn't making the billable hours, but there were some politics that were involved in it too. In addition to me losing my brother, during the first couple of years of starting out in such a sudden way that it, it really did like a mental shift for me. And so emotionally, I was a wreck and trying to deliver while trying to figure out law, even though I was in law school, like the actual practice is different from the whole pedagogy they try to teach you in law school for three years. Oh, yeah. And it was just such a huge disconnect. And I'll never forget when they decided to lay me off. The way the managing partner said it, he did the same thing that this fucking career advisors did, which say, maybe you want to rethink this profession. And I remember looking at him through my tears and all the nerves and everything else. I couldn't believe I was basically getting fired. I'm like, I've never gotten fired from a place. But I remember looking at him because I felt like this is the only thing I could say to still hold some type of like backbone. 
I was like, with all due respect, sir, I don't think you can determine that. Good for you. You're not the determining factor for that. And I remember the partner that I worked with the most, I was in the room. He nodded like he felt that. Yeah. <laughs> and I took that and I was on my way home trying to get a beer and relax and just think about my next steps at that point. And to be honest with you, having those types of challenges, I look back at them now and I can speak from a stronger voice. I can speak from a stronger backbone to say that, you know what? I think those things happen for a reason to propel me to understand exactly who I am and how I've cut through and I've always been the same. I absolutely needed to find something that was going to be true to me. I didn't want to work on, at the time I was a, a real estate attorney, I was doing land use work, but I was seeing how we were moving into places and gentrifying. And so I'm like, what is this doing to the actual communities? Mm-hmm. And then here I am as a black face from time to time, showing up in, at these dinners and these gala events and everything else. But I feel like the work that I'm doing is superficial. I feel like it's actually the antithesis of who I really am as a, a deep roots like community organizer, how I originally started, why I got into this law thing. Yeah. And so I started having these existential questions of, okay, you said you wanted to do law because you thought it was progressive, but you find it to be the most stifling career right now. It doesn't look like the principles of what we set out there and say that the legal community or the law is supposed to protect citizens. I'm seeing the opposite. You know, so I was really trying to figure out, okay, I know I chose this profession for a reason. Mm-hmm. What the hell is it for? Because what I'm doing right now in these jobs that are successful jobs, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. they are great resume stampers. But from a core standpoint of who I was as Esquire and then just Marissa Crespo, I felt like I wasn't truly aligned. And so I had to find that path. So no matter what I did, I took opportunities that were of lesser pay, things that were more contract work. So wasn't stable for a few years as I started building my practice because I was like, you know what? The best way I know I can invest in myself is to truly jump into this thing and start my own firm. Create a space, a legal space that makes the most sense of who I am. And I don't feel like I have to be smaller for anybody. So I have to dim my life for anybody, <laughs> you know, and I could really just be me. You can find any attorneys out there. We can look at a roster of different online sources for entertainment attorneys. But I was like, I wanted to find something where entertainment was that thing for me because I wanted to express myself as an artist. So I understand artists who want to do the same in different mediums. Uh, but I just chose the business side <laughs> as opposed to the creatives, 100%. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to create a firm that also felt like you were talking to your friend. You were talking to someone who can counsel you, who can guide you, who knows her shit, right? That you can trust. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know that she's got your back and like really feel that because I felt like it was all these intangible things that made some of the attorneys that I looked at, looked up to different. Yeah. That, oh, okay. She's a cold one. Like she's hard. This person's different because they bring their personality and whether you like them or not, you know, they're going to be who they are. And I, I really wanted to be that, not some generic form structure in a suit, always looking pretty with a Prada bag or whatever the case may be to show off my success, but really just find a lane where I, I knew I could advocate for people, um, do it in a way that didn't feel like everything was riding on the line. Like we're talking about movies, we're talking about podcasts and things. We are talking about someone's livelihood to an extent, but not where it's, you know, they're 
their life is truly in jeopardy, you know? Right, right. But also giving a side to it, where is this undercurrent of advocacy of being able to just represent for those voices that aren't heard as much. We're starting to hear them more in Hollywood now mm-hmm. because of this buzz thing. It sounds cute. I hear some great stories and I just want to be able to be a vessel for that. And yeah, I created my firm because I said, at the end of the day, I'm like a dirty martini. Not acquired days for everyone. Okay. <laughs> I either go like it or you not. <laughs> That's just me. And I felt comfortable with that. And I felt like having my name on the door, having folks get to me and not to a whole bunch of assistants or associates. And, you know, they feel like a number. All those things, I think, mattered of where I am today because it doesn't feel like it's hard work. It doesn't feel like it's anything extra because it's all kind of part of me. That makes sense. It does. And I think that's really important. I think all of those things, from what I can gather of you, exist truly. I think you are the personification of everything that you just talked about. You're a core person and you do know your shit and your business, but you don't do it without the absence of humanity and care and kindness. And I'm all about doing business. I will always give a thousand percent in everything that I'm doing. But I think there's a way to do it, you know, from what I can gather and just from my limited experience. Attorneys are therapy, but even worse. Like it's like every minute counts, every whatever counts. And what I'm about to say goes beyond jobs. I think it goes beyond entertainment. I think when we live in a world that's moving so fast and so complicated and things are getting crazier, I think the human factor And the trust factor and the care and compassion and kindness factor goes out the window. It's all just, let's just get this done. It's cold. It's hard. It's just bing, bang. Yep. And I think the thing that's really amazing is that you really have brought a real beautiful blend of your core person, your care, your empathy, your compassion, your perspective, and your kindness as a person that rides completely side by side with your professionalism and your expertise. And I think that's very difficult to do in this world and especially in the field of law. So I have to just point that out. No, thank you so much for that. It it really is tough. Look, I know you asked me the question. (laughs) Yeah. I want to touch on this because I wanted to seem like I'm just a rambler. Like I heard your question of some of the clients and things that I've worked with. I purposely don't answer those questions for a couple of reasons. One, I always like to make sure I have the proper authorization. (laughs) Yes, from an ethics standpoint, from the clients, they feel comfortable. But privacy, confidentiality, I get it. Absolutely. But like the clients that I blast in my newsletters or I talk about, they've given me the green light. But the other reason I don't answer the question is because I feel like that's part of that stigma, right? Of what is your worth? How are you validated of doing this thing of entertainment law? Exactly. Who have you worked with? Right. Trust and believe. I mean, you mentioned already a couple (laughs) as far as like net worth. And I respect that. I completely respect that. And I love that you're not going to name drop, but I am going to name drop for you. So I'm just going to tell you, and I will name drop in the introductions because I do think, unfortunately, you're right. Society does place a lot of status on what we've accomplished, especially in the entertainment industry. But I'm just going to say, I really respect that you made a point of not saying it but I am going to fucking name drop for you. So don't worry about that. And so I got you. No worries. But I actually wanted to go back to that for just a second. You know, when he did say that to you, that you should choose a different profession, 
I'm sure that was heartbreaking and it really was a sock in the gut. Mm-hmm. How did that impact you at that particular moment? And when you look back on it now and where you are now in hindsight, you might not have realized it at the time, but how did it make your backbone much stronger? I mean, I was definitely torn up when he told me that because I felt like he was feeding one of the little people on my shoulder that was like, yeah, you can't do this thing, right? I already had a little inkling of that self-doubt. So it was like, okay, hold on. Now I just feel exposed. And I started questioning, well, can I? I don't know. Can I? Right. Oh, should I? Oh, damn. <sighs> you know, it was one of those moments. Yeah. No, I hear you. And it deflated also that feeling of some of the accomplishments that I had that year where I had a piece that was published, you know, so I'm like, again, it was this weird juxtaposition where I'm like, I'm doing the thing, doing the damn thing. I'm creating this pathway for myself, but yet I I can easily have someone just knock me off my rocker, which tells me my foundation isn't fully built yet. So I'm an extrovert and introvert. So I get that. (laughs) The introverted side of me really went inward. Yeah, it's like, I can be me but there's a part of me that needs to recharge. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's what I had to do in that moment was really go inward and just really talk to myself of like, how do you let this person who doesn't even know you, he, he barely knew your name when you first walked in and he just cut to the straight questions, right? As part of that stigmatization of what an attorney in the making should be rather than really get to know me. So I'll be honest, those moments, they'll shape me and there'll be moments I'll never forget, but they help start building this stronger foundation. This foundation that's like, you're not going to just knock me. You're not going to just knock me off my feet, knock me sideways. Um, I know how to get that defensive stance and come back, you know, and then also just be stronger for the next thing. Um, Now, where I'm a little bit more vocal, where I wasn't before, I'm more vocal and I'll hit back (laughs) a little bit. Good. Or I'll just write you off. Well, clearly this isn't going to work, all right, for the following reasons. And I'll, because it's not worth my energy. Sure. To really build myself to that point, to this day, I still have to talk to myself like, self, you've got this. <laughs> you've got this. I get challenged all the time. Back to your point of like, it's hard to be kind. It's hard to be nice, um, especially in the entertainment industry. And as a woman, and a woman of color at that, right? Yeah. Let's let's be serious. Like most of the work comes out of LA. And so sometimes there is this energy and this vibe of everyone wants to be too cool for school. And so you get on the phone and I'm a bubbly person. So I'll be like, oh, hello. Like, how are you? Just small talk for a second. And then sometimes you get this hi or even no response. Yeah. What is this? So bubbly. (laughs) Kindness. What the fuck is that? Yeah. What is, like, what is that? Especially if it's someone that I'm, I'm trying to negotiate against. Like I had a call just yesterday with an attorney on a deal they're working on. And the conversation was definitely like two different energies coming into the call. You know, I was just trying to ask clarification questions and they were coming in of just, this is how we do things. Well, no, we don't ever agree to, et cetera. And I know it's BS because I've dealt with other deals where I saw that we did negotiate. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like those moments where it's like you're getting challenged or I, I get challenged a lot because I sound nice that, oh, well, she's not really trying to negotiate or I could probably push her, just tell her no and she'll just take that. Mm-hmm. Or if it's someone older on the phone, it's always like they try to draw the May-December card, right? Of like, oh, well, in my many years of practice, I'm like, that's so great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know, this is a negotiation, which means we negotiate. We actually talk it out. I love that. You know, don't tell me about your 30 years or whatever. That's great. That's fantastic. 
staying power, my friend. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure along the years, you also had to learn how to talk to people. So let's talk. <laughs> you know, those moments. I talk, but you got to just grit your teeth and bear it and get through it. But there is a pathway. A zealous advocate, I mean, you, I will represent for my clients. And there's a way to do it where you don't have to sound rude and harsh, you know. Yeah. You can just state things matter-of-factly. Let some silence sit for a second for people to process, you know. It's a powerful tool. And if it's not going well in that call, be, reconvene, take a beat. There's always a pathway forward. It's a matter of how people want to play the game. I think that's it. I think I've come to the conclusion. I was very adverse to playing the game for a long time because I thought when you play the game, it means that you're bad or you're shady or whatever it is duplicitous, manipulative, run down that whole list. Mm -hmm. But I realize now that playing the game is really just surviving. It's how you play the game that makes the difference. So I do think it's incredibly difficult to, regardless of what job you're in, especially again, as an attorney, and then on top of that in entertainment, to do what you do, hold the line firmly, but with integrity and kindness and humanity. And I, so I really give you a lot of props for, do they even use that word anymore? Am I just like 90 years old? And I just said props. <laughs> well, look, I I'm the wrong person to ask. I, I'm still stuck in the 90s if you ask me. <laughs> I give you a lot of credit for being able to toe that line, never losing sight of your core person as Marissa first and where you came from to where you are now, because you have achieved incredible things. There's another thing that I wanted to touch upon, and you had brought this up earlier in the conversation, being a woman first, and then being a woman of color second, or together in tandem, which we both are. What are some of the challenges? Can you share one story where it was like, uh, you found yourself going, what the fuck is going on? How did you navigate that? And how did it shift your perspective? And what are you doing to change that now? Mm. Ooh, this was one of those moments where I was like, yeah, it's time to make a move. Beginning stages of my career as an attorney, you know, I'm tasked to go out to social events, things like that. But I was invited out. Part of the work that I did, land use law for a while. And so basically that's representing developers who are trying to build hospitals or senior living facilities, recreational centers and communities. And they got to present before the zoning board, planning or zoning. So I was working on one for the Boys and Girls Club. And I was actually very proud of that because um, I, as a kid, I went to the Boys and Girls Club in South Carolina in the summers when I used to go visit my grandparents. And so that was actually a big staple of my formative years for my identity, you know, really to identify as a Black woman. And so here I am excited to be working with the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, we're putting up a, a new facility over there in Trenton, New Jersey. And I'll never forget, now Trenton is not the best area, right? Uh-huh. And so Trenton's not far from near Princeton. Yeah. There's polar opposites right there. It was like very stark, the disparity. Um, it was like, like maybe a year or so in the making where we had gotten the approval. We were actually doing the gala night where they were announcing it. And so they had some of the kids that were going to be attending the Boys and Girls Club. Um, it was great what they put together. But as far as the dinner itself, I'll never forget, they had an auction taking place too. Mm -hmm. And it just made, I sat in that for a second. Where I was like, wait a minute. Did anybody talk to marketing? <laughs> like, how did, like, who, who tends to go to the Boys and Girls Club as kids? Right. It's kids of color, you know, African-American kids, like Hispanic kids. So I'm like, 
the idea of an auction or auctioning off things, expensive things, trips to destination islands and all it just felt so off. It was a disconnect. Yeah, it just felt off to me. And I felt like here I am. And that was one of those moments where I was defining myself as a a woman and a woman of color. As a woman, I'm like, okay, I could be this attorney sitting at these tables, not talking to the community because there were community organizers there. Mm-hmm. There were children that were there that were going to be enjoying this new facility that we're opening. But I just felt like there was this disconnect of we attorneys are over here and some of the proper elites from Princeton that were donating and doing these auctions. And then there was the community and it just, just placement, everything seemed off that I was like, there was no thought yeah. to this. And I don't even think it was intentional. I, I'm not trying to characterize these folks as bad people, but it's just that piece I'm talking about. The nuances of like, remember what you do, remember how you do it. It has an impact. And beyond just the optics, like I'm talking about optics, but for me, it was also really anchoring in that moment to me of like, okay, I think it's time for me to really branch out into this legal field in a way that makes more sense of how I wanted to do it. To your point, I don't think it was intentional, but that's the thing about discrimination and inequities, right? It's so pervasive. We've all been indoctrinated in some ways. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it's so systemic in its own ways, right? And in that moment, that was the thing I felt myself in the beginning. I wasn't thinking about, I was thinking too much of how to make sure I was, I'm representing such and such a company that I work with right now. And I'm one of the faces. And I started realizing why I was one of the faces there. That was that moment. Ooh. Started looking around, started realizing why I was one of the faces there. I was like, oh shit, wait a minute. Now I'm a silent participant. Yeah. That's not cool. Yeah. That it almost missed me for a minute because I, I wasn't fully awake to be right through the motions that now like wake up, see what's happening. And that was one of those moments to answer your question where I saw myself as woman and uh, a woman of color. And then started talking to the kids and I, I went where I felt most comfortable. I was like, I don't want to talk to all these adults that want to talk about what company they work for and what their agenda is, blah, blah, blah. I went to the community. I went to the kids first. And this was way before I had my daughter. But I just felt like, oh my goodness, like I related to because I was like, I was you when I was younger. Like that, having the boys and girls club, having the friends that I had there that to this day, 20 something years later, I still have as friends. Like that was a core part of me. So I wanted to share in that excitement, which even they didn't even realize what it was or what it could be. And we didn't know, right? But at the end of the day, we have hope. So I wanted to go to where I felt like there was hope. There was vulnerability and just openness, right? Of just pureness and that all these layers of expectation, all these layers of falsehoods, but more so the true authentic forms of self walking around in that building. And I went to them and I went to other women of color who were there that were community organizers and having conversations with them. That's one of those moments that stick out to me because it crystallized and and expedited my desire to move on to the next thing. A lot of times we don't see it because it's just so rooted in all of our beings. Repin isn't just about race, gender, and orientation, but also representation does matter. When you went over to talk to the community, I think you going there and you also doing what you're doing today is showing that this can be done. But also, you can't fathom what the possibilities are unless you see it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not so familiar with the law side of it, 
But there's not that many minorities and underrepresented voices in many different fields. Attorneys are one of them. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you are doing it and you're doing it in a way that doesn't compromise your core person, you're, you're doing with just being a no bullshit like attorney that gets shit done and knows her shit. You show that not only can you be a woman, a minority, you can conduct business, know your shit without being an asshole. Mm-hmm. with never losing sight of why you're doing it to everybody else. Yes. You can be who you are without compromising your person. Mm-hmm. And you can do all of these things, get shit done by still being nice and not forgetting people. Yes, absolutely. And and it's two things that stuck out to me what you said. You know, presentation, if you really break down the word, like it means represent. You represent something. <laughs> you are presenting something that is out there, right? And AUD packaging it a little bit different says bring the nuance more to the forefront um, or to be more blunt if some folks need it, you know? If you're talking about representation, I think we start layering with different terminology that um, are buzzwords, right? That start coming out just truly about presenting true life true experiences, experiences that maybe think about in our everyday point of view, but we need that angle. It's not always like rainbows over here, unicorns running around and us walking hand in hand into the sunset. You know, passion isn't always come across super nice and bubbly. No, it's just being honest because you may not like what I have to say, right? but I'm going to give it to you 100% not being disrespectful. You know, sometimes like, I tell my clients, like, I always hate delivering the bad news, right? I'll have some clients ask me because I have done script coverage work in the past as I've dabbled on the creative side as well. So folks want to ask me to pitch their materials, uh, help shop. I don't like to be in that position because I don't want to leave anybody twisting in the wind, wondering what's happening with their project and whether or not there's a response out in the marketplace when there's all these different factors that go into those decision-making processes. But with that said, I like to help. If you're asking me for my input, I'm going to give you my input. But I always ask first, are you sure? (laughs) It's all right. Yeah. Because here's what I'm seeing and here's how I can understand where a buyer may be coming from or how they would respond to such product. And so I might have to go back to the drawing board before you really take this out to market. Here are some people that might be able to assist you. I'm showing compassion and being honest because I'm going to give it to you 100 keep it real. Whereas you might not ever get a response from a buyer, a production company, whoever. Right. Having been in those rooms and having those folks as some of my clients as executives of networks, like I can tell you, here's kind of the pulse of like how to respond to such thing. Right. Better hear from me than to not hear it at all. Or worse, you know, have this false assumption that you're going to have some type of control over it and it's just going to be completely beyond you. So those types of things, I think, is where compassion comes in. Is just, again, Going back and boiling it down to just honesty and transparency the best way that you can. That's also integrity as well and character. Very much. I think that it's amazing. Uh, you know, honesty, compassion, and integrity don't always go hand in hand with attorneys. Um, and it's so hard to toe that line in many ways. And, and, and sometimes it's about just the circumstances. It, it's not always possible, but it's a hard line to toe, man. Sometimes it is. I am all for putting crowns on, on my fellow kings and queens, but sometimes, whoa, some of these emails I'm getting, I'm like, I want to knock that crown sideways for a second. That's New York. Come on out. Come on out. Bring it. I'll get you together real quick. Wait a minute. <laughs> I think you have to play those cards sometimes, unfortunately, you know, when your hand is forced. So 
Sometimes you have to put your foot down. It's just how you do it. Mm-hmm. So listen, I'm going to ask you to sign us off for now, though. Let me know who you are and what you represent. I am Marissa Crespo. I am an entertainment attorney and I represent the, the community. I represent integrity. I represent heart in an industry that's more like the lion's den. A massive thank you to Marissa Crespo for being on the show, for sharing how she toes the line between business savvy and unwavering authenticity, and for the invaluable perspectives that she's gained. We hope you've enjoyed seeing a bit of this entertainment legal world and meeting this amazing individual. A huge shout out to my listeners. You make this podcast come alive. Your support and enthusiasm, they're the driving forces behind each episode. And we really couldn't do it without you. So if you like this episode today, as much as I enjoyed it, please don't forget, share, subscribe, and leave a review. Your feedback means the world to us, and it helps us continue bringing you these incredible stories from incredible people. And we are crazy close to the holidays, so you're getting a special. There will be an episode dropping right after this one where I wrap up the year with you. So check that out. As always, follow me on my Instagram page at repin underscore podcast. And I'm also on YouTube, so don't forget to subscribe to that. Thank you to Nelson Pinero and Gracie Kong always. Repin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But Wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make season two even more memorable together.